the final triumph of the wicked. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Bovcast. 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 This is the Bovcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hey there, Bob Squad. Welcome back to another episode of Bobcast. I'm Caleb Castro, and normally I'm joined by uh, my co-host Andrew Smith, but Andrew is currently taking a break here for uh, just a couple weeks uh, while he finishes up uh, his exams and such for uh, his last semester of seminary. Uh, filling in for Andrew, I have uh, Aaron Vanderheiden here, and Aaron and I are continuing a discussion that we started uh, last week with the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? Uh, why is it important? How is it misconceived? And so we're going to jump right back into uh, that discussion right now. We've spoken how there's definitely that duality of blessing and cursing. And it's very much linked towards Christ's return and such. In your studies with these Old Testament passages, what does this kind of like all entail? You've spoken a little bit about, you know, the first and second comings of Christ. When is this day of the Lord? And what sort of like scriptural context would we find these kind of passages in? This is an interesting discussion because when you first think about studying the day of the Lord theme in the book of the Minor Prophets, automatically you're going to look for Yom Yavet. You're going to look for the Hebrew construction itself. You'll find that in the Old Testament 15 times. 12 of those are in the Minor Prophets. Hmm. So that's what you're going to be looking for. But as you read through the Minor Prophets and as you study them more, you realize that there's more information on the Day of the Lord than just what is contained in those passages that explicitly speak to it. So, for example, if, if you just do a quick search in the Minor Prophets for Day of the Lord, you'll see some things that come up. You'll see it come up in Joel 1, Joel 2, twice Joel 3, then Amos 5, twice Obadiah is basically exclusively in, co- in the context of the Day of the Lord. And then in Zephaniah as well, you see it a couple times, Zechariah, Malachi, as we've mentioned already. But what's interesting is that if you dig into these phrases, just looking at Obadiah, just by way of example, all of it is in the context of the day of the Lord, or at least the vast majority of it is. But now you look at verses 12 to 14 of Obadiah. Do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. And you can keep going through those three verses. It's the day of this, the day of this, the day of this. But all of that's under the banner of Day of the Lord. And so that expands what you can use for research materials as you study this. And you can look at, now not every time the word day is used is it necessarily a reference to the Day of the Lord. But at the same time, a lot of them are. Hmm. And so that really expands what you're actually able to study. And it really makes this theme a lot bigger than you might initially think when you just look for the actual phrase day of the Lord itself. I'm not sure if that's what you're asking, but that's no, where I went. That's that's No, that, that's about right. And actually, that's where Bobbing actually goes into two on page 691 and 692. He talks about the day of the Lord and Yom Yaveh, or the day of our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He talks about how this begins with the appearance of Christ on the clouds. By speaking of a day, scripture does not by any means intend to convey that all the things that fall under the heading of the last things, like Christ's return, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, 
will occur in a time frame of 12 or 24 hours. So not a direct specific day like you said. And then he continues on. In Old Testament times, the day of the Lord was the time in which God, in a marvelously glorious way, would come to his people as king to redeem them from all their enemies and to settle them with him in Jerusalem in peace and security. And that's what you've already touched on uh, at the beginning of our talk here. This was referring to Christ's incarnation and his work on the cross. And then even then, the effects of the work of the cross are still ongoing right now. So in one broad sense, are we in the day of the Lord? I would say in a measure. I think if the day of the Lord is the cosmic and dramatic inbreaking. I think the incarnation speaks to that. And if we understand what we've talked about before, about the kingdom having already come, in some sense, we are living in the day of the Lord mm-hmm. right now, even while we're still waiting mm-hmm. for that final consummative day. And this is where I think the kind of the idea of prophetic telescoping comes in. Um, and Eugene Kimball offers a, a great quote on this. It's kind of long, so so bear with me. But this is in his article called The Prophetic Time Frame of the Day of the Lord Prophecies. And he says, in the day of the Lord prophecies, chronologically separate events are often telescoped. And then he defines telescoping where he says, which refers to the joining together in one context, events that are widely separated in their temporal accomplishments. And then he takes the day of the Lord example from Joel. And he says, for example, the day of the Lord prophecy in Joel involved a contemporary locust plague, first of all, second, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is fulfilled at Pentecost. And then also the yet-to-come final salvation of Israel and the overthrow of all pagan nations. And then Kimball says this, Joel places these three prophecies in one context without any time differentiation, which is a characteristic feature of biblical prophecy, whether the day of the Lord phrase is used or not. Hmm. I think Bavink is right to suggest that it isn't necessarily one specific morning and evening 24-hour day necessarily if we understand the nature of Old Testament prophecy and what the prophets were doing and prophetically pointing forward to events but kind of I don't want to say clumping or, or grouping them together but speaking to multiple things at the same time the day of the Lord becomes more conceptual than just a, a, an actual time frame and I think this fits well if we have a proper understanding of God's eternity if God transcends time and everything for him is the eternal present then any implication or any proleptic eruption with an eye that that's kind of the phrase that I've used to describe it any dramatic inbreaking more than just his his continuous creation and mm. sustaining and upholding of all things it really makes a lot of sense if we understand how big our god is if we understand that he is eternal we can understand then why there are different installments of the day itself mm. that's a really great way to put it i think as it is we're seeing like a snippet in in scripture we're getting like a small glimpse and description of something that's really incomprehensible to us because it's really known only to god which than even Christ had told us. I mean, you know, no man will know that hour. Mm-hmm. Like these, these are things we can't entirely grasp, though he has given us some baby talk form of description of what's yeah. going on. And I like where you're going with this. On the bottom of page 692, the very last clause, I think Bobbing summarizes it pretty well too, as uh, you know, all this, these are such immense occurrences, all the things related to the day of the Lord. These are such immense occurrences that they can only take place over a certain period of time. So in other words, it's just so much 
that they have to be summarized as a, a large day broadly in the perspective of God. On that same page, a little earlier, he's taking all this Old Testament information. He jumps now into the New Testament. And you'd said, we kind of think about this day of the Lord conceptually. And I, I thought it was great how Bob Inc. helped out in giving four parts of this concept of the day of the Lord. He lists that repeatedly, actually, on page 691 in that italicized portion. And then on page 692, these four concepts of the day of the Lord can be summarized as Christ's return, the resurrection of believers, the judgment of unbelievers, and the renewal of creation. Uh, I'm going to read this portion right quick, and then if we want to maybe get some uh, insight on this. On page 692, if uh, you're looking at Reformed Dogmatics with us, that first really large paragraph that ends at the end of the page says, according to the New Testament, the last part of the present aeon began with the first coming of Christ, so that now we live in the last days or the last hour, and the aeon to come starts with his second coming. And this is what Aaron was talking about. We live in this inaugurated eschatology. This present age is an age that is already moving to the completion of things, or rather the, the, the manifestation of their fulfillment. And it began with Christ himself. In this age to come begins with the day of the Lord. That is the time in which Christ appears, raises the dead, executes judgment, and renews the world. So there's those four concepts we're talking about. In the New Testament, this period is never represented as lasting long. It's like brief like a day, even though it really takes a while, like Aaron said. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, for example, that the transformation of believers still living and the resurrection of believers who have died will occur in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. He references uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, 17 as well. The resurrection and the last judgment are intimately associated as in a single act. So the resurrection and the last judgment occur as one event, contrary to what, say, maybe dispensationalists would say, Aaron? Yeah, and I think he does say in the very next sentence, I might be still in your thunder here, Castro, but judgment <laughs> is fixed on a day and even on an hour. Mm. But this last term is proof that scripture is in no way minded to fit all the events associated with Christ's parousia precisely into a time frame of 24 hours or 60 minutes. And that's really interesting. The idea that judgment is fixed on a day, ironically, this is kind of shooting from the hip, and this might be something that I need to look at a little bit more. But if Bob Inc. is correct that the resurrection and last judgment are intimately associated as in a single act, and that judgment is fixed on a day, what that implies to me is that any historical already fulfillment of the day of the Lord, like as we've said, the Babylonian or the Assyrian exile or something like that, all of those events interestingly actually become semi-eschatological hmm. because if they are in the context of the day of the Lord and in the New Testament construction, the day of the Lord, the judgment of the day of the Lord is fixed on a day, those Old Testament exiles become types and shadows hmm. of what is coming for those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ. Hmm. Unpack that a little bit more. I like that idea because uh, you said uh, semi-eschatological. What do you kind of mean by semi-eschatological? M meaning that they don't constitute ultimate consummative fulfillment, mm -hmm. but that they're indicative of something that is still yet to come. Mm -hmm. So not they themselves are not the great consummative event, but they speak typologically to that great cosmic, final, dramatic inbreaking. 
How does this fit in, you say, with Revelation? What the book of Revelation is really about? It's a book of encouragement to the church and the things that she undergoes through sufferings, trials, and persecution, right? A lot of people in the dispensationalist or premillennial or even certain postmillennial viewpoints will kind of read it a little more as a chronology of events. Premillennials and dispensationalists will kind of use it as like a map of like future things. This is what must happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen. But really, Revelation is built up in like seven cycles or events of showing here's a general description, a broad description of the church age, the things that are going on in between Christ's two comings. And then it will go into then another viewpoint and it'll talk about those same things from a different perspective. Kind of like if you're a photographer or something, you take a picture of an object from one angle and then you move around to the backside and you take a picture of that object again. You now have a different perspective. So Revelation's kind of taking different snapshots of the time in between Christ's coming to give us different perspectives. So when we see things like sufferings and persecution of the church throughout history, whether it's, you know, in the time of the medieval church and the papacy or the time of the Reformation, or if it's the time of, say, the church under a Holocaust Nazi Germany or today, this is all encapsulated by Revelation. Yeah, I think that fits well. I think if you look at the general structure of the book of Revelation, it's not this linear chronology it's this i think the fancy term for it is progressive recapitulation Mm -hmm. and i I kind of liken it to the movie dunkirk by christopher (laughs) nolan Um, caleb knows i'm a big christopher nolan fan but one of the things that christopher nolan does incredibly well is play with timelines what's interesting is that if you ever watch the movie dunkirk it's the same story now spoiler alert it's the same story told four different times from four different viewpoints Hmm. Um, And that's kind of the dynamic that's going on in the book of Revelation as well, is that it's the same or at least similar events being looked at from a different point of view. Mm -hmm. As opposed to like 1917, to continue with the metaphor, where 1917 is one continuous long shot, this and then this and then this. Right, and you you get the sense that you're part of it, Uh which is, I mean, that's a fantastic movie. But I think I think that that's a really good illustration. To but it's show. dispensational. But yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I think I think that's a really good way to kind of compare and contrast the two different approaches, the two main approaches to to the Book of Revelation. Is that one of them is the more 1917, and the other one is the more Dunkirk. And I think the more Dunkirk kind of construction <laughs> fits better with with the structure of the book itself. That sounds like eisegesis, but I think. The <laughs> All analogies break down. Yeah. I'm, I'm more of a saving. I'm more of a saving perfect Ryan kind of guy. I guess I don't know. <laughs> classical, old school. I don't know. Well, and so some in, in this though that that also means that like sometimes sometimes things in the church are going to be fine or are going to seem pretty good, and then other times they're going to be really hard and, and or much hardship. So I mean, it's not one simple linear thing, but there's many different things that are going on, especially from what perspective you're looking at it in the church. Whereas right now we enjoy some kind of relative peace and security here in the U.S. as opposed to maybe in the Middle East or in Canada. Or in no. Canada. Right <laughs> now, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit in, in different measures, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. But then this is going to be different than, say, in France with the Huguenots, the, the French Reformed uh, under persecution of the Roman Catholic-backed government. Right. But I think in all this, to, to be clear, just because Revelation has this idea of of progressive recapitulation in this similar events coming from a different point of view that doesn't automatically preclude or, or eliminate the fact that history is still going somewhere and history is still moving somewhere and and obviously history is is coming to its its ultimate fulfillment in due time as we consider you know the second coming of christ 
But I, I think really what we're what we're trying to get to at this point is, you know, in this discussion of Day of the Lord and its initial fulfillment and its its ultimate consummative fulfillment, I mean, what's the takeaway here? Why does this matter? We've done the what, and now we're going to look at the so what. And I think I've mentioned this briefly just a, a little bit ago. This is incredibly hope-bringing, if that's mm. a good phrase or a good way to describe it. I think this, properly taught, this should bring a lot of hope and a lot of comfort to a lot of people in situations where the gospel is seen even as illegal. In a place where there's persecution all over the place, the fact that the final day of the Lord is coming is something that should be incredibly profound for the church. And I wonder if our comfort in the West and our ease in the West has kind of watered down that profound heavenward living kind of thing. Mm. Philippians 3.20 is, is one of my favorite passages of scripture because it speaks to if our citizenship is in heaven, that really matters for now. And, and Paul in that section contrasts heavenly citizenship with worldly citizenship. And 2 Peter 3 talks about that too. If this is true, what kind of people should you be? Mm. And I think that's really the big takeaway from all of this is that if this day of the Lord is coming, and to use Malachi's language, and it's burning like an oven, if you have been healed by that son of righteousness, if you've been washed in the blood of Christ, there is no reason to fear that final consummative day of the Lord because mm-hmm. it's coming for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Judgment is fixed on a day, but for those who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings because justice and righteousness are still even now being poured out like waters because God's judgment has been satisfied. Christ has won the victory over sin, death, and hell. And one day he's going to return. And if God can fulfill his promise to his people to send a Messiah as the true Israel to do what we could not, you can definitely believe that that glorified Christ is going to come back to finalize everything. Hmm. And I think that's really the big takeaway for me, at least in this discussion and in this independent study, is that this is something that I think the church needs to hear. I totally resonate with that, where it's like we could ask a single pointed question, you know, do we believe Christ is already victorious? Do we believe that he has accomplished what he was sent by the Father to do? And then do we believe that the Spirit is even now at work in judgment concerning him testifying to believers in convicting the world, convicting the world of its sin, convicting the world of faith? Is the Holy Spirit at work? To kind of take from uh, Bobbing from page 702, when Christ promised his 12 disciples that they would sit with him on the 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel, do we believe that? Do we believe that he gave a true and sure promise? Do we believe that when John went into the heavens in his vision in Revelation, do we believe that he saw around the throne of God the elders of the church seated there? Did he see the martyrs there that, that cry out to the Lord? And did he not hear the promise that these things would be happening soon, that justice is established and the outcome of them in the judgment is sure? Do we believe that Jesus Christ and his church are one? To take again now from Bobbing, that in which the world and the angels have wronged, the believing community is counted as having been done against him. So when something is done against his believers, when believers are persecuted, mocked, killed, 
Do we believe that that's actually also done to Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is just going to sit idly by and not vindicate his own name and those of whom he has written his name upon? I mean, you see that in Paul's or Saul's conversion. I mean, he's ravaging the church and then Christ comes to him on the Damascus road and says, why are you persecuting me? Mm -hmm. Not why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting Christians? Why are you persecuting these converts and, and these followers of me? Why are you persecuting me? And I think that speaks to, you know, if we are in faith union with Christ, what what is done to to us isn't a measure done to our Lord. And mm-hmm. in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you're blessed when you're reviled because of mm-hmm. me. When people mm-hmm. falsely speak all kinds of evil against you because of me, you are blessed because of it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the same kind of thing that Paul's talking about in Romans 8, one of the most famous passages. And there's there's a part of me that thinks we've really lost the right hook mm. that is Romans 8. Mm. I think it's become so, it's like Psalm 23 mm-hmm. and John 3.16. They've become so popular mm-hmm. that they have less bite to them. But Romans 8.18, For I consider that the present sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I mean, so many people I would think are, are very familiar with that statement of the Apostle Paul. But to really understand the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. People will often say it's comparing apples and oranges. No, this is like comparing an apple with an anvil. Like Mm. these things are so categorically different that they're not even worth holding up to the scales and trying to compare the two of them. Mm. Now that doesn't downplay the significance of the suffering that people might endure. You know. Christians are being beheaded, they're being persecuted. Mm-hmm. Even in smaller ways, church doors are being closed or gates and fences are being set up around church buildings. That doesn't downplay the significance of those sufferings. But what it does do is it heightens the sheer glory that is the glory that is to be revealed in us. Mm-hmm. So if you accent it properly, you can still recognize that the sufferings are immense, but the glory that's coming is even greater. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul goes on to say, in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, if God is on our side, if we're in faith union with Christ, if we have died and been raised with Christ, then anyone who opposes the gospel can't even hold a torch to who we call Savior. When he continued with that, where it's Christ Jesus who died and who was raised, and he, he says, who is at the right hand of God? That's a statement of Christ's exaltation, of Christ's present session on the throne. And that's just a present eternal session on the throne. He's stating in that then, Christ is reigning. Mm-hmm. And in this same way then, for us who have died in him and have been risen in him, Paul continues, who shall then separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives us, you know, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, of the sword. No, we are, and this is the nature, I believe, of us being co-heirs and reigning in Christ. Paul says in 837 of Romans, No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We partake in Christ's victory. We partake in the triumph. And this is why the church uh, is the church triumphant. Mm-hmm. And that day, this will be fulfilled in that we shall reign with him, having through him conquered uh, and put down all evil all enemy nations, all opposition to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. 
And this is why I think that that Second Peter three transitioning from day of the Lord to day of God is interesting, because it does heighten it, and it does make it a little bit more profound. That that the day of the Lord and these eschatological fulfillments are inherently and solely the work of God, and yet by virtue of His grace, His church gets to participate in the aftermath mm-hmm. of His dramatic day of the Lord. Malachi speaks to that too. Malachi four again. I keep going back. I just I love Malachi four, but. <laughs> You shall tread down the wicked. And it sounds like the church is going to be the one and going to be the thing that God uses to bring it in and and really to usher in that day. But if you forget this next clause, it says, and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Hmm. They've already been consumed. They've already Hmm. been judged. And yet we go out leaping like calves from the stall, Hmm. which I used to work on a dairy farm (laughs) and... It's one of the coolest things to see, a happy calf. But you tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Understanding that the reason the wicked are ashes under the soles of our feet is solely the work of God. And yet we participate in it because we are in faith union with Christ. I don't know about you, but I, I think that's a massive part of the essence of the gospel. I saw this meme a while back. I know I'm quoting a meme in a theological discussion. <laughs> but it's... It's a picture of this kid reading his Bible, and at the top it says, the world burning down, and I'm over here, like, and then it says, we win, though. And I, I, I'm i realizing more and more when I think about that, I realize how right that actually is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the world might be going to hell in a handbasket, but there is a hope for us that's never going to perish, spoil, or fade. Mm-hmm. And I think that is is something that we can't ever exhaust mm-hmm. and that message is something that we never should ever diminish but we can maybe never truly do justice to in our preaching and our teaching and our admonishing one another mm-hmm. and our and our encouraging one another as disciples of Christ in our walks of faith I'm wondering if if that's a message that needs to be accented more but will happily never be exhausted mm-hmm. and that, well, I, I don't think I ever can be exhausted I think what you're saying here that inexpressible joy that's stored up in heaven uh, ultimately that is not the hope of getting to heaven but the object of our faith himself that's jesus christ and so long as we preach christ we proclaim christ in him crucified then that can't ever be exhausted right the, the word of god is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword it has something to say at all times and in all places mm-hmm. and and thankfully if we understand perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints god's church will never ever diminish it will never ever be destroyed mm-hmm. it will last forever because it is his to quote the great cornelis venema it is his blood-bought bride Footnote. That was footnote. <laughs> I don't have a page number. But. Well, that's all the time that we have having wrapped up uh, the day of the Lord. I hope that it was edifying to you as much as it was to us um, that you were able to learn something in that. We thank Aaron for coming on here. We look forward to hopefully having him back on another time soon enough or in another capacity. Till then, tote scenes. Say it. Tote scenes. Tote scenes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never said that before. Tote scenes. Tote scenes. There we go. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. 
For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.